Innalhamdalillah Nahmeduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ghfiruh Wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa sayyiati a'malina Man yahdihillahu falamudillalah Wa man yudlil falahadiyalah Wa ashadu an la ilaha illallahu wahdahu la sharika lah Wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh Amma ba'd so we're at the hadith where Al-Imam Al-Bukhari now says Qala haddathana Abu Al-Yaman Qala akhbarana Shu'ayb Qala haddathana Abu Al-Zinad Anil A'raj An Abi Hurairah Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama Qal Qala Allah Ana inda dhanni abdi bi then also qala haddathana Ismail qala haddathani Malik an Abi Zinad an Al-A'raj an Abi Hurairah anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama qala qala rajulun lam ya'mal khayran qatt fa idha mata fahriquhu wadhru nisfahu fil bar وَنِصْفَهُ فِي الْبَحْرِ فَوَاللَّهِ لَإِنْ قَدَرَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ لَيُعَذِّبَنَّهُ عَذَابًا لَا يُعَذِّبُهُ أَحَدًا مِنَ الْعَالَمِينَ فَأَمَرَ اللَّهُ الْبَحْرِ فَجَمَعَ مَا فِيهِ وَأَمَرَ الْبَرِّ فَجَمَعَ مَا فِيهِ ثُمَّ قَالَ لِمَا فَعَلْتْ قَالَ مِنْ خَشْيَتِكَ وَأَنْتَ أَعْلَمْ فَغَفَرَ لَهُ Both of these narrations, the shahid from them is the fact that at the beginning of them, or at the beginning of the first one initially it says, قَالَ اللَّهِ So it is mentioning that Allah said, أَنَا عِنْدَ ظَنِّ عَبْدِ بِي I am as my servant thinks of me. And in the second one, it mentions the story of the man who had never done any good deeds at all. The story of the man who had never done any good deeds. And he said, this man, he said, to his sons, as it mentions in one of the narrations, that when he dies, they are to burn him to cremate him and then to scatter half of his ashes on the land and half of his ashes across the sea because he said by Allah if Allah is able to put me back together to resurrect me then indeed he will punish me, him, talking about this individual, he will punish him a punishment that nobody else has been punished to that extent from the creation. And then though, Allah commands the sea and the sea gathers all of the ashes of that man and then commands the ground, the land and the land gathers all of the ashes of that man. And so he's put together and resurrected. Then Allah says, ثُمَّ قَالَ Then Allah says, لِمَا فَعَلْتْ 
Why did you do that? To have yourself burnt, your ashes scattered across the land, across the sea. Why did you do that? He says, Min khashyatika, from my fear of you. That is what led me to perform that. Meaning that he feared, as he said, if Allah resurrects him, he will punish him a great punishment, not to the like of what anyone else has ever received. So from that fear, he thought to do this, to cremate himself, have himself cremated after his death, his ashes scattered everywhere, thinking that maybe he won't be resurrected like that. But then when he was asked why, and he said, because of my fear of you, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave him upon that. Because of his genuine fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The shaykh, he mentions the point of this narration is the fact again that Allah speaks and says to the man, why did you do this? Another evidence, another proof highlighting the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks. The shaykh mentions... أن ظاهره أن هذا القائل ظن أن الله لا يقدر عليه والشك في قدرة الله كفر فكيف غفر الله له The man thought and assumed that if he's cremated and his ashes completely scattered everywhere that Allah wouldn't have the ability to put him back together again to believe that Allah doesn't have the ability to do that is a belief of kufr. To believe Allah is unable or incapable of doing that. To believe that is kufr. So how can it be that this man believed that, yet because of his fear of Allah from that angle, he was still forgiven. He's committed kufr in his belief. How could he have been forgiven then? فيقال it can be said إن هذا كان جاهلا فظن أنه إذا فعل ذلك فإن الله تعالى لا يبعثه فلم يلحقه معره من ذلك لكن ما في قلبه من خشية الله وخوفه منه هو الذي جعل الله تعالى يغفر له it could be said that maybe it's because the man was ignorant he didn't know جاهل of his lord not recognizing the ability of his lord ignorant of this affair thinking that maybe if my scattered my ashes are scattered like this then there won't be me being resurrected from his ignorance and his jahl he thought that so perhaps because of that it was not looked at in punishment terms but his khashia of allah his fear of allah that is what saved him ultimately then the question then arises هل يعذر بالجهل في أمور توحيد العبادة؟ Can somebody be forgiven in affairs of توحيد and shirk like this with ignorance? Can that be an excuse? العذر بالجهل. Can that be given as an excuse that the person didn't know he was ignorant even though what he's done is an act of kufr, a belief of kufr? Can you be excused on those things with ignorance? 
There is a big debate over this topic, what you may call a heated debate over this topic amongst the scholars regarding the issue of Al-Udhar Bil-Jahl. The Sheikh says, basically, yes, it is possible. نعم في كل شيء وما كنا معذبين حتى نبعث رسولا لكن قد يؤاخذ الإنسان بتفريطه إذا لم يبحث If a person is genuinely ignorant genuinely ignorant did not know then yes it can be forgiven but you have to qualify genuine ignorance genuine ignorance is not if a person has access to the internet and to books and everything the library he has access to all this information and yet he's going to claim he didn't know that isn't genuine ignorance because then the person has developed or allowed that ignorance to remain upon himself without doing something about it to remove it even though he had the ability to do something about it and remove it he had classes going on in his locality. A sheikh, a, a scholar, or a student, or someone teaching. Yet he never goes to those classes. Knows they're there, right there, close by, never goes. Then afterwards, can he be excused with ignorance upon certain affairs? No. He had the opportunity to remove the ignorance. He didn't take it. Therefore, he's not classed as being under the fold of genuine ignorance. He had the chance to search, to research, to find out, to remove the ignorance. He didn't do it. So that person isn't excused with ignorance. Ignorance is in a situation where there is genuine ignorance, genuine inability to get the truth, genuine inability to understand the truth. You're upon ignorance and that's what you're upon. But a person who has the ability could research, could find out, but he doesn't do anything, then you're not going to give him the excuse of ignorance. There's a few other points also mentioned in the narration, but we're moving along with the shawahid. Then, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَحْمَدِ بْنُ إِسْحَاقِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَمَرِ بْنُ عَاصِمْ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا هَمَّامْ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ سمع قال سمعت عبد الرحمن بن أبي عمره قال سمعت أبا هريرة قال سمعت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إن عبدا أصاب ذنبا وربما قال أذنب ذنبا فقال ربي أذنبت وربما قال أصبت فاغفر لي فقال ربه أعلم عبدي أن له ربا يغفر الذنب ويأخذ به غفرت لعبدي ثم مكث ما شاء الله ثم أصاب ذنبا أو أذنب ذنبا فقال ربي أذنبت أو أصبت آخر فاغفره فقال أعلم عبدي أن له ربا يغفر الذنب ويأخذ به غفرت لعبدي ثم مكث ما شاء الله ثم أذنب ذنبا وربما قال صاب ذنبا قال قال ربي أصبت أو أذنبت آخر فاغفره لي فقال أعلم عبدي أن له ربا يغفر الذنب ويأخذ به 
غفرت لعبدي ثلاثا فليعمل ما شاء The narration again another evidence upon the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it shows you the level of knowledge of these scholars shows you the level of knowledge of al-imam al-bukhari where he's found all of these multiple different narrations with different topics and different sections of knowledge within them but all of them have somewhere affirming the speech of allah could be one line in them sometimes a hadith which is otherwise nothing to do with that topic yet you see the depth of the knowledge of these scholars of the past this is now what's happened here would be almost like a full research paper for the students these days go and find all of the hadith where it mentions the proof of allah speaking that could be a whole semester you spend on that a year you spend researching writing a thesis on that and here you are al-imam al-bukhari in those days no computers no search engine no nothing now all of these various hadith and narrations from various places various topics all of them because they have one little bit in them somewhere proving the speech of allah in this one here then abu huraira says i heard the prophet say that indeed a servant committed a sin and then it mentions the possible wordings of the narration but that a servant committed a sin and then he says my lord i have sinned so forgive me and then then his lord says his lord then says does my servant know that he has a Lord that forgives the sins? And that he holds accountable upon them? I have forgiven my servant. And then the narration as it goes on for the second time and the third time, the same thing happens again. He commits a sin, seeks forgiveness. And then Allah speaks again, saying, does my servant know, etc. Then the third time it happens again and Allah speaks again. So in three instances in the narration of the servant committing a sin, and then Allah speaks and says, does my servant know that he has a Lord who forgives? The point being, therefore, the narration highlights again the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks. Yani, at the end of the narration, it says, then he can do what he wants. He's been forgiven. فكلما اذنب الانسان وتاب فان الله يتوب عليه واذا عاد الى الذنب فان التوبه الاولى لا تنخرم ولا تنهدم لكن يجب ان يجدد للذنب الثاني توبه فاذا جدد التوبه تاب الله عليه فقوله فليعمل ما شاء ليس المعنى فليعمل ما شاء من المعاصي والذنوب وانما فليعمل ما شاء من هذا العمل الذي كان يناجي الله تعالى به so now you got this person who's committed a sin and then he's repented and turned back to Allah and he's been forgiven. Then after a while he's committed a sin again and he returns back to Allah and repents and Allah forgives. Then after a while he commits a sin again and returns back to Allah and repents and Allah forgives. After the third time then Allah says you can do what you wish. Do as you wish. You have been forgiven. Do as you wish. That is not to be understood as meaning 
that three times now you've committed the sin, three times now you've repented and you've been forgiven, do as you wish now. Not to be interpreted, do whatever you want, whatever sins you want to commit. You've been forgiven now, you've been forgiven, do whatever you want. Doesn't mean that at all. Rather, it means do as you wish, i.e., if you fall into these sins and you fall into these errors, then continue with this action of seeking repentance if you end up falling into sin. Return back to Allah every time you fall into sin. Do that every time. Meaning don't lose hope in that. Don't stop in repenting and returning back to Allah. Do that as you wish. I.e. whenever you sin, then do it and return back to Allah in repentance. Don't lose hope in that and abandon that. Every time you commit a sin, then you need to make a tawbah for it. Repent from that sin every time you commit a sin with a new tawbah. And Allah forgives the one who uh, seeks the forgiveness, the one who repents. Then the mercy of Allah is there upon the person. The Shaykh says, إِذَا شَرَعَ الْعَبْدُ فِي الذَّنْبِ ثُمَّ تَرَكَ هَذَا الذَّنْبِ بَعْدَ شُرُوعِهِ وَلَمْ يَتِمَّهِ وَلَكِنْ لَيْسَ لِلَّهِ وَلَا عَجْزًا فَهَلْ يَأْثَمْ If a person starts doing a sin, then abandons the sin in the middle of it, doesn't finish it off, doesn't do that sin he was doing, in the middle of it he leaves it. But he didn't leave it for the sake of Allah, and he didn't leave it because he was unable anymore. So is there a sin upon this person? He started the sin, but he stopped halfway, didn't continue and do that sin. The Shaykh says what appears to be apparent is that the person would be sinful for what he did, for the amount of the sin that he did, because of the statement of the Prophet what I have prohibited you from, then stay away from it. If a person began doing a sin, then he didn't stay away. He ended up going into that sin and beginning it and starting it. So there would appear to be a sin upon that person, the one who starts a sin, but then in the middle of it, for whatever reason, doesn't do it anymore. Then it would appear to be a sin upon him, but he didn't leave it for the sake of Allah and didn't leave it because he was incapable also, بالنسبة للكبائر والحقوق الآدمية هل يغفر هل يغفرها الله عز وجل؟ In terms of the major sins and the rights of the people, sins where the rights of the people are involved, can they be forgiven؟ كل من تاب من ذنب مهما عظم فإن الله يتوب عليه. Whatever the sin may be, no matter how big it becomes, then Allah forgives. Whatever the sin it may be. Allah forgives the person إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَغْفِرُ الذُّنُوبَ جَمِيعًا Indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives all of the sins وَصَبَقَ لَنَا أَنَّ حُقُوقَ الْآدَمِيِّينَ لَبُدَّ مِنْ وَفَائِهَا إِنْ عَلِمْ With the rights of the people, the condition is there that you have to return those rights to the people. If you committed a sin that involves the rights of the people, then you have the normal conditions of tawbah. And what are the normal conditions of tawbah? Firstly and obviously you must stop doing the sin. You can't repent from a sin if you're still carrying on with it. So you stop doing the sin. On top of that, 
you have regret over what you've done genuine remorse and regret over what you've done if you're happy you did it you think i'm glad i did it but i'll repent now then that isn't a genuine repentance secondly then remorse and regret for what you did also absolute intent that you will never return back to that sin again resolute intention never to return back to that sin again if in your mind you know you're going to go do it again it's not a genuine repentance fourthly to drop the sin to regret it to never repeat or have the intention to never repeat it also hmm? that's in the regret regret and grief over what you did to hate what you did hmm? to be a muslim but from the conditions of tawbah what else we didn't we just said that we're gonna come to that in a minute he said that too. People not listening. What else? Sincerity, of course, that is with all of the actions. I'm asking for forgiveness. This is the whole process of the Tawbah. What about the time limit? Is there not a time limit for Tawbah? So what is the time limit? There's a time limit to making Tawbah. To asking for forgiveness for your sin. If you go past the time limit, that's it, too late. What is the time limit? Before the sun rises from the west? What if we die before that happens? So we can't have forgiveness? So either before death, Inna Allah yaqbalu tawbat al-abdi ma lam yugharghir In Muslim, Allah accepts the tawbah of a person before the soul exits from the throat. So before death, once the soul is exiting from the throat, you're at that point there, too late now. Now everybody wants to repent. Before that, or before the sun rises from the west, when everybody sees that, they'll know as well, too late now. So within the time zone. Then you can add on an additional clause if the sin you had done involved the rights of the people. Then you add on the additional clause, which is that you must, on top of all of those things, return the right of that person so how do you return the right of that person you stole something from a person and now you want to repent etc so you got to return the right of the person by returning that item back to them for example uh, you, you abused a person in some other way then you go and seek forgiveness from them ask them to uh, overlook your sin and to forgive you etc what if you're not able to return that right to the person? What if that person is long gone, you have no idea who you stole this from 20 years ago, what are you going to do then? As Sheikh Bin Baz said, give in charity on behalf of that person. You stole a phone from somebody 20 years ago, then that phone that you stole of someone, no idea where he is, who that person is, the value of the phone or an amount of money, give it in charity on behalf of that person with the intention of that person. 
And so that is then returning the rights to that individual. Otherwise, we know that dhulm, oppression, is three types. What are the three types of dhulm and oppression? Firstly, and the greatest type is shirk, meaning dhulm between yourself and Allah. The greatest type of dhulm, of oppression, of wrongdoing, is the dhulm between yourself and Allah. And that is shirk. Inna shirka la dhulmun azim. Indeed, shirk is a great uh, dhulm, a great oppression, a great wrongdoing. When the ayah was revealed in the Quran, which ayah? إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبَسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِذُنْ أُولَئِكَ لَهُمُ الْأَمْنُ وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ Those who have iman and then do not mix it with ظلم then they will have the safety and security i.e. paradise and be rightly guided they will have the safety and security and they are the rightly guided when that was revealed it was difficult for the sahaba because when they saw that ayah those who have iman but don't mix it with dhulm they are the ones who will be rightly guided they are the ones who will have the safety and security of the reward of paradise etc they went to the messenger and they said, but messenger of Allah, who from amongst us never commits dhulm? All of us now and again end up in dhulm. We may end up in some oppression here, some wrongdoing there. All of us, we end up in dhulm, O messenger of Allah. How are we going to get this promise of this ayah? So then the Prophet ﷺ told them, It's not what you think. The dhulm in the ayah means... Shirk inna shirka la dhulmun azim. Those who have iman and do not mix it with shirk, then they are the ones with that safety and security, and they are the ones with that right uh, guidance. The second type of dhulm between yourself and other people, between yourself and the creation of Allah, then that type of dhulm. In order to repent from it, you do your repentance, but you must also return the rights to that person. And the third type of dhulm, between yourself and yourself, and how do you oppress yourself? By committing sins, because when you commit sins, it means you're putting yourself in line for punishment. So you're oppressing yourself, you're doing dhulm to yourself by committing sins, by ending up Possibly getting punishment on yourself for them. What is the ruling on all three types of dhulm? The first type of dhulm, the dhulm between yourself and your Lord. The one who commits that dhulm and dies without seeking repentance, without forgiveness, seeking forgiveness. Now what is the ruling? Hellfire forever. The one who commits that major shirk and doesn't repent from it and dies upon it, the ruling is hellfire. 
The second one, somebody who oppresses another person, doesn't seek forgiveness, doesn't repent and dies upon it, the ruling. تحت المشيئة that if Allah wants he'll forgive the person if Allah doesn't he'll punish him the ruling what is the ruling in terms of is it forgiven or not the first one we said no it's not somebody dies upon shirk it's not forgiven if you haven't repented and you haven't sought forgiveness second type somebody's oppressed other people hasn't sought forgiveness hasn't repented and died the ruling forgiven or not forgiven Uh, not forgiven rights correct the scholars say technically as a hukum you say it's not forgiven that type of dhulm you do to other people isn't forgiven because on the day of judgment something has to happen for you to be forgiven which is a bit different to taht al mashia you could just be forgiven in this type you can't just be forgiven you're not forgiven on the day of judgment the rights will be returned and equaled then it's leveled and gone before that you're not forgiven and that's the narration of do you know what the bankruptcy is on the day of judgment so then the companions they said a person who doesn't have any gold or silver or money but then the Prophet explained to them that is not the bankrupt one on the day of judgment. The bankrupt one on the day of judgment is somebody who used to have ibadah, salah, hajj, sawm, fasting, prayer, uh, hajj. He used to do worship. But at the same time, abuse this one and, and uh, curse that one. Beat this one up and take the wealth of that one. He used to oppress people. Even though he used to do his worship. Prayer, zakat, hajj, fasting. But he used to oppress people. So on the day of judgment, all of those people will come and line up and start taking good deeds away from him. To balance out the evil that he done to them. Until all of his good deeds run out and there are still people waiting to get their rights back. So then... They will cast their evil deeds unto him and reduce their evil deeds. So the balance is done between them on that day. Third type of dhulm, you oppress yourself and die upon it without seeking forgiveness. The ruling on that, تحت المشيئة. Maybe Allah will forgive you upon that because of other affairs. Maybe Allah by his mercy forgives you upon that and maybe you're punished upon that. Then after that, قال حدثنا عبد الله ابن أبي الأسود قال حدثنا معتمر قال سمعت أبي قال حدثنا قتادة عن عقبة بن عامر لا عن عقبة بن عبد الغافر عن أبي سعيد عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أنه ذكر رجلا في من سلف أو في من كان قبل أعطاه الله مالا وولدا فلما حضرت الوفاة قال لبنيه أي أب كنت لكم قالوا خير أب قال فإنه لم يبتئر أو لم يبتئز عند الله خيرا وإن يقدر الله عليه يعذبه فانظروا إذا مت فأحرقوني حتى إذا صرت فحما فاسحقوني 
أو قال فاسحكوني فإذا كان يوم ريح عاصف فأذروني فيها فقال نبي الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فأخذ مواثيقهم على ذلك وربي ففعلوا ثم أذروه في يوم عاصف فقال الله عز وجل كن فإذا هو رجل قائم قال الله أي عبدي ما حملك على أن فعلت ما فعلت قال مخافتك أو فرق منك قال فما تلافاه أن رحمه عندها وقال مرة أخرى فما تلافاه غيرها فحدثت به أبا عثمان فقال سمعت هذا من سلمان غير أنه زاد فيه أذروني في البحر أو كما حدث This hadith is the same as the previous narration talking about the individual who died and said to his sons cremate me and spread my ashes This is a longer version of it where it mentions when the man was dying or that the Prophet ﷺ was narrating the story of a man from before, from previously, from the times gone by a man whom Allah had given lots of wealth to and lots of children when death came to the man he said to his children what kind of a father have I been to you? they said a good father a good father but then he said فَإِنَّهُ لَمْ يَبْتَئِرْ أَوْ لَمْ يَبْتَئِزْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ خَيْرًا what do they put for that? who has the English? the workbook what does it say? فَإِنَّهُ لَمْ يَبْتَئِرْ أَوْ لَمْ يَبْتَئِزْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ خَيْرًا What about just before that? When he says to his sons, what kind of a father have I been to you? They say you've been a good father and then? All right, okay. So then after that section, it's basically as it was before that the father tells them, if Allah resurrects him, then certainly Allah will punish him because he's never done any good deeds. So then he says to them that when I die, burn me, cremate me. When I become ashes, spread me out across a wind. When a big wind comes, spread my ashes everywhere. So they scatter everywhere. In another version, it mentions how he said to them about the sea as well, scatter them across the ocean. So then they did that, and then on the day of judgment, Allah says, Kun, be. And so he's resurrected and standing as a man together again. And then it said to him, Why? What is it that caused you to do what you did to have yourself cremated and your ashes scattered? He said, Because of my fear of you. And so, as the narration mentioned before at that point, uh, Allah has mercy upon him and he's forgiven. So again, the point of this narration at that section, it is said to him by Allah, Allah, Allah says to that man, uh, speaks to that man. Then after that, we have the chapter, Bab Kalam Rabbi Azza wa Jal, Yawm Al-Qiyamah, Ma'al Anbiya'i wa Ghayrihim. The fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will speak to the prophets on the day of judgment and other than the prophets. قال حدثنا يوسف بن راشد 
قال حدثنا أحمد بن عبد الله قال حدثنا أبو بكر بن عياش عن حميد قال سمعت أنسا رضي الله عنه قال سمعت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إذا كان يوم القيامة شفعت فقلت يا ربي أدخل الجنة من كان في قلبه خردلة فيدخلون ثم أقول أدخل الجنة من كان في قلبه أدنى شيء فقال أنس كأني أنظر إلى أصابع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم This hadith, it's talking about the day of judgment and the intercession that occurs on the day of judgment, the shafa'ah. What is the belief of Ahl Sunnah regarding shafa'ah? Somebody comes to you now and they say, what do you guys believe about intercession, about intermediaries, about shafa'ah? What are you going to say? Anybody hands up? Somebody comes up to you now and they say, what's your belief about shafa'ah? Intercession, intermediaries. What's your belief as Salafis about shafa'ah? One person, two, three, four, five. Only five? Six? Six out of how many here today? Three, six, nine, what is it? Forty, fifty, sixty? Only six, that's ten percent. That's poor. Anybody else? Seven? Go ahead then. We're going to stop on number seven. So, somebody asks you, what's the belief of Ahl Sunnah regarding Shafa'ah? Regarding intercession, what are you going to say? Alright, but what's our belief about Shafa'ah? Do we accept Shafa'ah or do we not? Do we believe in shafa'ah or not? We do. So then if the guy says to you, okay, excellent. In that case, right now I'm going to my peer or leader, whatever they call it in the shrine. I'm going to go do some shafa'ah right now. Since you said you accept it, let's go together. What are you going to do? You're not going to just smile at him. What are you going to do? What are you going to say to him then? So we accept shafa'ah. We accept shafa'ah. But then what do you have to explain? If you've done Al-Qawa'id Al-Arba'ah, you've done Kashf al-Shubuhat, you've done those books, uh, three fundamental principles, you remember this topic of the shafa'ah. You have to explain that there are two types of shafa'ah. One type we accept, affirm. One type reject, it's not acceptable. The type that we accept and we affirm like the type of the Prophet ﷺ doing it on the day of judgment, etc. What are the conditions for that type that we accept and affirm? That it, oh. So it must be a shafa'ah which has within it two conditions or you could break it up into three conditions. That it must be by the permission of Allah من ذا الذي يشفع عنده إلا بإذنه Who can seek intercession with him except by his permission And secondly that the person seeking the intercession 
and the one that he is interceding on behalf of both of those must be people of tawheed that is the meaning of allah being pleased with them allah is only pleased with the people of tawheed that is the intercession we accept and that is what occurs here that it mentions on the day of judgment when i am allowed to make the intercession the prophet then i will say my lord enter into paradise those who have even the the small amount of iman the seeds worth of iman and so they enter and then i say enter into paradise the ones even with the tiniest amount of iman anas says it's as though right now i can still see the prophet at his fingers at the fingers of the prophet this hadith tells us about the prophet talking to allah he's asking allah remove from the fire with the ones the ones with this amount of iman that amount of iman وَقَدْ سَبَقَ فِي الْحَدِيثِ السَّابِقَةِ فِي الشَّفَاعَةِ أَنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى يَتَكَلَّمُ وَيَقُولْ أَخْرِجُوا مَنْ فِي قَلْبِهِ كَذَا وَكَذَا In the other narrations of intercession, the versions of narrations that go along with this, we see in those narrations when Allah says, remove from the fire the ones who have X amount of iman. Allah says that. So Allah speaks to the Prophet or to the believers because there are narrations when the believers, the mu'minun, Allah says to them, go and remove from the fire the ones who have this amount of iman, that amount of iman. In the narrations when the believers, they come and they say, oh Allah, such and such used to pray with us, such and such used to do the worship with us. So then Allah speaks to them and tells them, go and remove them. So all of these types of narrations have an affirmation of Allah speaking on the day of judgment to the prophets, to the messengers, to the believers. Then, قال البخاري قال حدثنا سليمان بن حرب In fact, one time is a Maghrib. It's gonna have to be next time. We'll stop at that section there. Uh, the next hadith is a lengthy hadith. We'll begin with those ones next time, insha'Allah ta'ala. We'll finish the chapter off. And then uh, we'll move on to the chapter regarding Musa alayhi salam having spoken to Allah, Allah spoken to him. Uh, and there's a few examples to come like that. So we'll move on to that from next week, insha'Allah ta'ala. Next week, class will be on, insha'Allah, 8 p.m. or 8.15 p.m. Insha'Allah ta'ala. Any questions on that so far then? Or anything else? Charity on behalf of the one you oppressed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Scholars, they say if you've taken the right of a kafir, it still applies. You've done dhun to a kafir, you've stolen off a kafir. And you still got to give that right back. So you still, you give in charity. You give in charity with the intent of that action that you've done and the stealing you've done. And with the intent of returning the right to the person, you give the charity. And that is the returning of the right that you're unable to return otherwise. It wouldn't benefit the kafir in terms of good deeds on the day of judgment. But it's in the, in the purpose of you fulfilling your duty in your repentance. Uh, who doesn't? Or the person? No, in, in that case, 
You wrong a person and he doesn't forgive you. Even though you return the rights back to him, you fulfill everything and you do everything. Then from your side of things, you've done what you can do. You've done what you can do in terms of what is obligated upon you in that situation. You did some wrong to a person, you fully return the rights to that person. You maybe even go more than that in your seeking of forgiveness with the person. He refuses and he doesn't accept and he doesn't do this and that. Then there's nothing more you can do. You've given the rights back, make dua for that person on top even more. You've done all of your rights. So inshallah ta'ala, that would be your fulfillment of your objectives. And then whatever else is to occur beyond that, Allah alam. But you fulfilled your objectives up to that point. Ignorance. Takfir? Takfir what? A person with takfir declaring somebody to be a kafir, the rulings of that we've come across in the other books before. There are clear cut rulings mentioned by the scholars in the books of Aqidah regarding the topic of takfir that it's not something you can just do without establishing an evidence without removing the doubts without doing it in a language and a manner the person understands all of the various principles regarding that issue before you can just declare a person a kafir to the extent they give the example the scholars you may see something which is an absolute act of kufr but you can't declare the person a kafir instantly just like that until you've established something on the situation. They give the example of the blind man. You see a blind man and you don't know he's a blind man. You see somebody prostrating to an idol right in front of him. Afterward you say, what are you doing? Prostrating to an idol, kufr. He says, what idol? I'm blind. Somebody just gave me the direction of the qibla. I started praying. I had no idea there was an idol sat in front of me. So has he committed kufr? No, even though the act as you see it is an act of kufr. So it requires the establishment of that, the removal of any doubts, removal of any mawani, as they say, any preventative factors to establish the kufr upon a person. Then there's also the issue of istihlal, just because a person does something which is a sin, something which is a major sin, something which may be of those categories, it doesn't mean the person is a kafir unless he is making istihlal, believing it to be permissible when it's actually haram, basically therefore rejecting the Quran and the Sunnah in its declara declaration of that thing being haram. Istihlal is a key point. That's why all the takfiris, when they start declaring Muslim rulers to be kuffar because of sins they're doing, they say, look at this Muslim ruler, he's got cinemas in his country. He's got uh, uh, interest running in the banks of his country. These are all major sins. He's doing it. He's, he's clearly ruling by other than what Allah has revealed. That is not the case. He is sinning by allowing those things. But do sins make a person a kafir? No. Just because somebody commits a sin, it doesn't make you a kafir. Then also there's the topic of differentiating between the action and the actor which is similar to the first example, that a person may commit an act of 
kufr but you don't declare that the person is therefore instantly of that a kafir there's a difference between an act of kufr being done by somebody to then going on to the next stage and saying therefore he's a kafir it's not a case of the act is an act of kufr you've done it therefore you are a kafir that therefore doesn't follow just like that there are rulings and principles into it the only thing left then is suppose is the issue of something which is known in the religion by necessity and that's the crux of al-udhar bil jahl if somebody now is prostrating to idols prostrating to graves that is an act of major kufr major shirk prostrating to others besides allah can we give that person an excuse by ignorance can it be ignorance that you are prostrating to others besides allah that is something natural in the fitrah of a person to worship allah alone can you really say but he's ignorant he doesn't know you're not allowed to prostrate to others besides allah can you really say that some scholars will say no you can't how can you say that a person doesn't know you can't prostrate to others besides allah how can that be something under the category of jahl or ignorance? That's where the real topic comes into it. And the real discussion all comes into it. To what line, where can you draw the line between saying somebody has done something, but they genuinely didn't know, and so you excuse them. Prostrating to others besides Allah, can you put that into this category? That he just didn't know you can't do that. Didn't know you can't prostrate to others besides Allah. It's pushing the boundaries, some scholars say. You're committing acts that are acts of shirk and you're going to say these people are still Muslims because of ignorance and they don't know? Then it's a real in-depth discussion, those topics. But does that clarify some of the points? You can't just declare a person a kafir upon an act of kufr. There has to be establishment of evidence. There has to be removal of doubts. You can't just declare uh, rulers as kuffar because they are ruling inverted commas by other than what Allah has revealed because they may not be doing istihlal. They may not believe that this is permissible. They may not believe this is equal to the sharia or better. They're just doing it because they're sinners. They want to increase the money in their country and they know riba, for example, will allow that to happen. So they sin. Sinning doesn't make a person a kafir. Anything else? No, then the scholars, they say, return the rights discreetly. If it's going to cause a problem, like you stole something from somebody and doesn't even know it was you, then you're going to turn up one day with that item and say, sorry, it was me. That may cause problems. So in that type of a scenario, scholars mention, just return the item discreetly. Return it back to the person without him knowing it was you. Return it back to him. Send a note seeking forgiveness that you stole, etc. Seek forgiveness from Allah and you return the right back to him. Hmm. It will be on, inshallah. Inshallah. Unless, unless everybody's going, are they going? What's going on? People are going, everybody's going? The plan was I, 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 to come back and do the class. That was my plan. Because my lecture over there is going to be early on, and I, I'll be back in time. So my plan was to come back and do the class here next week. So, huh? If, if everybody's going to be here, then we'll do it. If everybody's going to be here, then we can still do it. At 8 o'clock, I'll be back, inshallah. We can carry on with it because the week after will definitely be off. 
week after is the Birmingham conference. It's going to be lectures all throughout. Everybody's going to be there. So next week, I was planning to keep it on if everybody's going to be here. Inshallah. So it can, it can, it can remain on 8 o'clock, uh, quarter past 8, normal time. Inshallah. Khalas, we'll leave it till then.